1: Short-term rentals are big business, you know, VRBO, Airbnb, but they come with some problems. Is there a way to possibly regulate this industry? We'll look into that. Ottawa needs to have a modern policy for Taiwan. It is becoming a flashpoint, a potential flashpoint in geopolitics. We'll find out why and what Canada needs to do. And Facebook, they're going to rebrand themselves. Uh, They've had a tough go of it lately, so they're going to try and restart the conversation. And they're also talking about something called the metaverse. Hey, have you ever used... They call them short term rentals. Basically, we're talking about things like Airbnb or VRBO. You know, uh, you're going on vacation instead of checking out a hotel, you go to someone's home and they rent it out. That's essentially what this is. Some people do it, you know, relatively long term, short term if that's a thing, but some people will do it, you know, not not just for a weekend, but some people will be in there for a month or two kind of thing. It's, it's a whole new industry that hasn't been around all that long, maybe 10 years, 15 years, something like that. But it's a relatively new entry into the accommodation market and it's had a big, big impact. So, um, let's get some details. We're going to chat with, um, Lindsay Tedds, who is a co-author of a report done by the, uh, school for public policy, taking a look at short-term rentals, and whether they're good or they're bad for us. Lindsay, thanks for your time this morning. Really appreciate you joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Why don't we just start with how big of an impact this has been having on the accommodation industry? Because, like I say, it hasn't been around that long, but it's really become a major player in a relatively short time, hasn't it?
2: Well, interestingly enough, short-term rentals have actually been around for hundreds of years.
1: (laughs) Not like this, though.
2: yeah it's the platform facilitated yes. short term rentals yeah so um airbnb being of course the the first entry into this market in two thousand and seven, and they just had an i p o what was that um less than a year ago, and you know their valuation. Um, surprised uh, uh, the market. So, yeah, this is a really important um, player in uh, the accommodation market. And, you know, we we wanted to get a sense of uh, why was it so hard to regulate this market?
1: Yeah. And I mean, that's part of the issue is because it it really took off because people like it. There's a lot of things that people really enjoy about this kind of a system. So there certainly is some good out there and that's why people use it.
2: Yeah, exactly. It, it very much filled. Um a a market that was being underserved by existing accommodation providers. And in particular, anybody with a family knows it is awful to spend a holiday in a in a small hotel yeah, prison, sure. uh with your children. And so there's a lot of options that are available on the market that uh weren't available before. Of course, a lot of those um hotel providers have now entered into that market because there was such a pent-up demand for different kinds of accommodations, particularly to serve um, uh, a particular particular demand and preferences for accommodation.
1: But as you point out, there, it has not been a completely smooth ride. It, there's been a lot of problems. No. There's been a lot of concerns around this too, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the biggest one that comes up is related to housing and rental affordability. Um, And I I think that that, you know, that comes from the idea that uh, people are removing their long term accommodations from the market in order to uh, get into the more lucrative short term rental market. Um, But it it is also true that the short-term rental market didn't cause those problems. It exacerbated them. But any market that had housing affordability problems after short-term rentals actually had it before. And so short-term rentals are actually maligned for problems um, that aren't of their making.
1: Now, when we talk about any of these sort of platforms, as you say, it's always about regulation, be it social media, be it this sort of platform. It's always about regulation and how difficult that has been. Where have the barriers been to some sort of regulation on this?
2: Uh, the biggest one is the regulations forget the platforms are a player in this market. They're not passive. Right. They don't just put a platform out there and go, you know, you guys sort it out amongst yourself. They actively market to both um, people who are looking for short-term rentals as well as marketing to people to getting into the short-term rental market. So that is one of the biggest problems that we saw is the regulations make an assumption that the platforms aren't involved in this market, and yet they are, and they actually can make or break um, whether or not there is a a problem with short-term rentals um, in any particular jurisdiction.
1: What about the fact that, you know, we're always trying to play catch up with these emerging platforms and technologies? Is is that part of the problem? We just don't have an updated regulatory policy that we can apply here?
2: Yeah, so our, our, our regulatory framework is designed for there just to be, you know, consumers and, and firms, right? Yeah. Um and so what what they forget again is, is this mediate is mediation that goes on. The other emerging issue that has been overlooked is that people with a unit tend not to want to also be property managers. Right. And so instead they actually hire Companies to manage their one property, but then it looks like that player has, like, you know, dozens of short term rental markets when all they are doing is actually helping somebody manage that property. And, you know, when we were looking at Alberta data, particularly, a lot of those properties were actually timeshares.
1: Well, this is the thing, right? I mean, it sort of takes it from the realm of, hey, you've got uh, a spare room, or you're going to be out of town for a week or whatever, why not rent your place out to some travelers? And then it takes it from that just being a home-based, somebody offering this up to, now it's an industry, like you say, and and people are doing this for investment purposes, and there's companies involved that maintain the property, so it's not what it necessarily is thought of by some people
2: exactly it is much more complex than um, than just you know people are snatching up houses and then putting them out in the short-term rental market um, people have lots of different accommodations we're actually even see seeing tenants. Who are perhaps going on vacation for two or two or three weeks? They'll rent out their room in their in their shared apartment um, so that wow. they can get income while they're away. So it's incredibly complex, and it is really really important that our regulations be matched to the complexity of the market and not what we sort of assume to be what's going on in this market.
1: So what do we do? Uh, You've taken a look at some of the issues and some of the problems around regulating this market. How can we successfully bring in some regulatory policy?
2: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we wanted to make sure that that people understood is There is no one-size-fits-all. Every market is going to be different. Mm -hmm. What you do for short-term rentals, say, in Canmore, is different than what you're going to do for Calgary because there's very, very different markets with very different players involved. So the important part is to make sure you understand understand the market in your jurisdiction, make sure you understand what objectives you're trying to achieve, and then make sure that you understand that you're going to have to interact with the platform and make sure that they are also understanding of the regulations that you're trying to put
1: in place. Yeah, it can't be a top-down thing with the government just dictating, right? They have to be involved with the platforms. They have to be part of the process
2: yeah they absolutely do, and that is because they are the ones who are marketing um, both the 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 rentals and as well as to the tourists themselves.
1: yeah, it is an interesting discussion, uh, Lindsay, thank you so much for your time today. really appreciate you joining us. Oh no, thank you for having me. You bet that's Lindsay Teds from the uh, School for Public Policy who's done a deep dive into this whole short term rental market that's out there. we're going to turn our attention back to China. We've talked about China a lot on this show uh, and Canada's posture with China, the response to China, and um, how that seems to be changing somewhat and what it needs to look like. So to have that discussion, we're joined now by Dr. Scott Simon, who is a senior fellow with the McDonald laurier Institute and a professor of social sciences at the University of Ottawa. Doctor, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you very much for making this possible. Okay, so we're going to be talking primarily about the Strait of Taiwan today, mm-hmm. which uh, a lot of analysts are saying could, could be, if it's not already become, a uh, potential hotspot geopolitically with a lot of activity, including Canadian military activity. So why is this such a key location? What's going on there, and why do we need to be keeping an eye on the Strait of Taiwan?
3: Well, the, the big issue there is that off the coast of China is Taiwan, which is an independent, sovereign country, and China has the goal of annexing Taiwan uh, for a long time, and they've recently been using their military to really show their might. So this month, they've sent over 150 Chinese military aircraft into the air defense identification zone of Taiwan. So that kind of sends a sign to the world that they're very serious about their goal of annexing Taiwan. And I'll repeat again that they have never in history governed the island of Taiwan.
1: Um, now, in response, as you say, increased Chinese military activity, but we're also seeing some of the Western democracies also increase their military presence in this area, correct? That's
3: absolutely right. In fact, uh, just just
1: recently, the,
3: about the last week or so, Canada sent um, the HMCS Winnipeg, through the Taiwan Strait, accompanied by the American missile destroyer, the U.S.'s Dewey. And that that demonstrates to China that these are international waters. China's on one side, Taiwan's on the other.
1: Um, When was the last time we saw something like that from our country in terms of a military show of force like that?
3: You know, it's been a while. I think that the last time was last year. Okay. Now... Yeah, so we are there, but it's the first time we've done it with the United States.
1: So um, the two Michaels, uh, the diplomatic impasse that we had with China for so long that finally broke a few weeks back, is, is that part of this, do you think? I mean, does it give us a little more freedom to act in different ways in that part of the world? You know, I, I think that
3: there's that perception, uh, but we have been involved in that part of the world very much through uh, military exercises with, uh, with Japan and the United States and our allies. And we've been involved in the sanctions against North Korea as well, and also in freedom of navigation operations. We don't call them that like the U.S. does, but in the South China Sea, and so we are there.
1: when it comes to this part of the world, I know uh, other countries have taken more action, at least diplomatically. Um, Canada, really, it seems to be we have this policy when it comes to China: we capitulate, we appease, we don't really want to push back, or at least in many areas. Um, is that the strategy we've also deployed when it comes to Taiwan up until this point?
3: Well, you know, I, I would say it is, and in fact, I was watching a webinar with um, um, one of the one of the persons, Paul Evans, uh, explained that liberal practice. Has been to take a more nuanced uh, view towards uh, China, and that includes not openly challenging their claims to Taiwan. Yeah, not and working. So that is what's going on. And even though the liberals haven't created uh, an official policy and made it available to Canadians, uh, their practice shows that they. Are willing to accommodate Chinese demands to a degree which I think that our allies in the United States might not agree
1: with. Right. I mean, that's the thing. Uh, The rest of the international community seems to be far more forward-looking in this. Um, What's you know what is the better strategy, and are we seeing a change? Maybe Are, are Canadians starting you know teaming up with the U.S. in that in that exercise? Does it show that maybe we're changing our posture on this?
3: Well, you know, I think we're fortunate to have another minority parliament because we're going to probably have another China committee in parliament. And the opposition parties in Canada have been willing to take a, a stronger position. Mm-hmm. The problem has been with the Liberal cabinet, and we're going to have the same prime minister and, and probably some of the same characters in the cabinet. So I don't really see too much change. I think parliament will keep their feet to the fire a bit, and try to make some advances. There
1: was a, a private member's law
3: that was presented before before Parliament called
1: an election. So what is the best approach? Is it to be firm and to be consistent and to sort of take a stand one way or the other on this?
3: Well, you know, I think that the, the best approach is to work with other countries. We have to be honest. We are a small country, but other small countries like uh, Lithuania have mm-hmm. taken stronger stands than, than, than Canada has. And so we need to stand behind our allies and it's not just the United States. I think that probably the, the most important one to stand with would be Japan because that's right next to Taiwan and China. And and Japan would definitely be involved if there's a conflict. So we have to work with Japan and our other allies to prevent a conflict
1: from happening. Okay. So keep your eye on the Strait of Taiwan. We know that's been a flashpoint for a long, long time, but it looks like things may be ramping up a bit.
3: Yep, that's right. Things are heating up a bit, and I think that if we do the right things, we can prevent this from evolving
1: into an actual conflict. Excellent. Dr. Simon, thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. Good. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. That is Dr. Scott Simon, who is a senior fellow with the McDonald Laurier Institute and a professor of social sciences at the University of Ottawa. Let's talk about Facebook. Uh, get an update on what's going on with them. Cause you may have seen the news reports. They're planning on a rebrand. They're going to rebrand Facebook. And they're also talking about something called the metaverse. As you know, Facebook's had a tough go. <laughs> they really have in the last little while. So maybe this is the thinking of how to try and turn things around for them. But let's find out what's going on with this rebrand. We're going to chat with Ramona Pringle, who is an associate professor in the RTA media at the creative school of Ryerson university and the director of the creator, I- uh, creative innovation studio. Uh, Ramona thank you thank you for your time today appreciate you joining us
0: oh it's my pleasure thank you
1: so what did you think when you heard that Facebook was planning a rebrand what's going on here
0: Not surprised. I'll say that much. As you say, they've been in the eye of the storm for quite some time. That said, you know, they remain very powerful and very profitable. So I don't feel that badly for them. Um, But there's a precedent for this. You know, we saw this with Google. Uh Um, A number of years back, Google transitioned to being Alphabet, the parent company within which Google is one company. I think sometimes when an individual brand gets too notorious, it's good for these companies to be able to rebrand, have a new identity, have people talking about something that's not the, you know, notorious um, component of their company with the, all the bad press, but taking it in another direction. And, you know, the the piece that I think is getting talked about a little bit less is it's not just about rebranding and um, shifting attention, but it's also about the ex- expansion into all these different areas. You know with Google, it wasn't just uh, let's take the attention off of Google and rebrand as alphabet, but it was getting into robotics and and getting into all these other areas that you know you don't think about when you think about a search engine. And with Facebook, similarly, Um, This is a shift that speaks not only about, uh, you know, let's have people think about Instagram and WhatsApp separately from the Facebook uh, app proper, but let's expand what we do. Let's expand our reach into people's lives.
1: Which is where the metaverse comes in, right? Precisely. Okay, now what is a metaverse? I think I have an understanding, but explain it to me.
0: So metaverse is much closer to... The vision of um, being online, the internet, cyberspace that we were um, uh, told about uh, two decades ago, where you know you've got an avatar and you're in virtual space and you're in a virtual world, more like a video game, but more uh, of, a, of a 3D version of the internet. Social media came about, and you know we have our smartphones; people are connected all the time, and so. It is, you know, there's an argument to say we're always connected, we're always immersed, and we're always in this sort of hybrid reality. But the metaverse, especially with the rise in AR, which Facebook has been investing in, and VR, you know, Facebook bought Oculus Rift, so a huge, huge VR purchase. um, The metaverse is is taking that sort of all-encompassing reach that Facebook has but making it like a virtual rendering of are live with shops and discos and parks and movies and anything that you can imagine but built in virtual space.
1: So basically you can wander around in this virtual space, interact with people, like you say, go to the bar, go shopping, all these sorts of things. You're not actually going anywhere, but the virtual you is going there? Is that a simplistic way of looking at it?
0: That's exactly right. And, you know, because Facebook has so much information, it's Everything you already experience on Facebook or WhatsApp or Instagram, all the people that you know, all the conversations that you're having, only instead of it on a flat scrolling wall, it's in this sort of 3D immersive space. And then you have to imagine also, think how good all those targeted ads are. If you're having a baby, all your ads are for baby stuff. The streets that you're walking down are going to be targeted to you, what you like, what you search, what you want. Uh, And so I think that there's a huge um, advertising retail side to all of this, too.
1: Why does it seem just really wrong to me? And I mean, is is it because I saw Wally? I mean, it just seems to me like this is not the direction we should be going in.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting because if you see what kids can do in this space and, you know, like there's a kind of, uh, you know you look at something like Minecraft, which is a great educational tool as well and there 's great applications of all of these things. I think the worry with a company like Facebook is you know it 's really what um what we're where we 're seeing a lot of pushback from regulators is around the concept of antitrust is that they 're so powerful yeah. that they own everything that they have all this access to information you know I think it it is that 's where I think it starts. People get a little bit nervous because it's it 's a it's a powerful company becoming even more powerful. And a lot of this comes down to who's making, who's making these new platforms, who's making these new spaces and how much oversight is there going to be? How much regulation is there going to be? You know, the, the, um, uh, backlash that we've seen in the last few weeks. And, you know, there was this whistleblower who came forward so much of that, um, has just brought to light how necessary regulation is. We have it in every other industry, whether it's tobacco or uh, automobiles, there's always rules to keep people safe and there just hasn't been when it's come to the internet. So all of a sudden, if you're going to have another space that's even more expanding, where we're going to spend even more of our time there, <laughs> it really does underscore the need. I wouldn't say they shouldn't be built, but it needs to be, be built with caution yeah. and independent oversight.
1: I mean, what could go wrong, Ramona, right? I mean, <laughs>
2: uh, but, Well, we're sort of living that.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, we sure are. So let's go back to the rebranding here quickly before I let you go. Essentially what it is, if I understand it, it's Facebook. I mean, they're known as Facebook. And right now, Facebook is not something you want to be known as. And it sort of all their other interests, and and like you say, they're they're not just Facebook. There's a bunch of other things this company's involved Mm -hmm. in. So it's sort of trying to get them away from the stink of Facebook? Is that a simple way of putting it?
0: I think that's part of it, yeah. So, absolutely, I think that's part of it. You know, what's interesting already is that a lot of people that distinction they, they, a lot of people don't you know they 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 don't realize how much facebook already owns i've heard i can't tell you how many times i've heard people say oh i'm quitting facebook i'm going to go use instagram and instagram is facebook it's owned by facebook but perhaps as there's more media there's more coverage more people understand They're trying to get a little bit further away from um, the brand with, as you say, the stink or the notoriety. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also do think, as I was mentioning right off the top, I also think that this speaks to their desire to be more than a social network and start getting deeper into other
1: industries. Okay. Well, we'll watch it and and see how it goes. I mean, all eyes are on Facebook anyway, so uh, it'll be interesting to see if this manages to sort of resurrect them off the canvas a bit because it, it really has been a tough goal for the last two sure or three
0: will. weeks. Sure will, yeah. It'll be really interesting
1: to watch. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ramona. Really appreciate your You're time.
0: Welcome. You're welcome. Have a great day.
1: That is Ramona Pringle who is an Associate Professor in the RTA Media at the Creative School, Ryerson University, and the Director of the Creative Innovation Studio. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favourite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.